BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Welcome to Raising Good Humans podcast. I'm Dr. Aliza Pressman, and today we're going to continue our really important conversation about anxiety with Dr. Tracy Dennis Tawari. Today's focus is on anti fragility. We have to really think about our kids in a different way if we're going to help support them. We're also talking about what it really looks like when our kids come home with scenarios that feel incredibly anxiety provoking for us and where they're experiencing those really uncomfortable feelings of anxiety, how to respond, how to think about things and reframe things and what treatments, interventions, and preventions are out there. If you enjoy this episode, please take a little moment. I know nobody has any, but any moment to just write a little review. Let me know what you liked. Let me know if you want more of this kind of topic And of course, sign up for my Substack newsletter and Apple Podcast Premium for just a little bit more interactions and community each week. You know, it's so fun. I was thinking about this the other day, and this is this is super a super weird reference, but this is what brought it up for me. I was watching this great TV show called Under the Banner of Heaven. Have you heard about this? It's like a true crime, Mormon murder mystery, like kind of amazing show super talented actors. But here's what got me thinking, because it's a story of faith as well, of a community of faith. And you can disagree or agree, but you see some beautiful moments of just a family, you know, families coming together and having faith. And part of faith that whether it's a religious faith, a spiritual faith, a, you know, a kind of, a, you know, maybe a, a social faith in our social obligations to each other, one thing that's a part, always been a part of faith is that we know that life is, has suffering in it. We know that life is really hard and that sometimes we're tested, whether that means you feel like we're being tested by a God or that the universe just sometimes throws us things that we have to rise to, or maybe it's just all dumb luck and who knows. But whatever your belief system, for many, 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 probably millennia, humans have understood that life is hard and it's not sanitized. But now we have a very different thought pattern. We feel that life should be sanitized, that life should be like the kids. We don't even think about, well, what is expected development for kids at two when they're having separation anxieties? Well, wait a second. 
it's actually like clockwork that when you reach about 18 months to two years or even a little younger, that you see separation anxiety and it's actually expected challenges. And it's a de- and developmental theories for, you know, decades and decades have talked about these developmental challenges that are actually required for kids to navigate, to move to the next level. And, you know, whether it's like, you know, classic Ericksonian sort of developmental stages, or even, you know, you could even say Freudian, or you could say, say, you know, even a Maslow's sort of, even a hierarchy of needs that we have to deal with hard stuff to build more skills. And, you know, that those, we're sort of lost that. And I think if parents can get that sense back and to know, okay, it's okay that they're banging their head right now. It's not great, but it's something that happens with kids. And now that's when, that's when I, as a parent can, can do that hard work. We, as a society are so worried about mental health and also we're so confused that it means that any discomfort and suffering we're charged with fixing And that's how we're going to get a more mentally healthy population of young people. And and that, I think, is where we've done a disservice to families, is the misunderstanding about mental health that we spoke about before, combined with the sense of, if I just make these bumps flatter Mm -hmm. and I take away that suffering, I will have a child who grows up more confident and sure of themselves in the world. When in fact, that is treating kids as fragile. And I would love for you to dive into anti-fragility. So anti-fragility, I think, is one of the most important ideas we can apply to parenting, to ourselves as parents and our community. So we know what fragile is, right? Fragile, and, and we think about negative emotions as being part of our kids' fragility. Fragile is something like a china teacup. You drop it, it falls to the ground and smashes into a thousand pieces. You can never put that teacup back together again in the same way. So fragile is scary, right? Because it really leads to brokenness that can't be repaired. But kids are not fragile. And there are a lot of things that aren't fragile. And Nassim Nicholas Taleb coined this term to talk about the opposite of fragility, which is anti-fragility. Now, Anti-fragility isn't just resilient, right? Like this sort of like bounce back from from stressors. Anti-fragility is the property of actually growing stronger because of challenges and stress and strain. So the immune system is a perfect example of an anti-fragile system. Because if you live in a sanitized world with no germs and no bacteria, no viruses, your immune system will actually not learn to function at, at its optimal. You might start to develop, we think now, some you know, more allergies, more autoimmune problems. So the, our immune system requires to challenge and to mount a, a, an immune response to learn to be at its best, to actually learn to protect us. Muscles are anti-fragile because unless you stress and strain them, they will atrophy. That you have to, and you have to sweat and sometimes pull your muscles and do all that. And that's how you work a muscle to its fullest strength. And our emotions are the same and our kids' emotions are the same. Unless we allow them to be challenged, allow them to be stressed at times, and then to build the skills and to compensate for that with new abilities and to build and grow, they will not be able to be emotionally healthy people. And so when we take that as our guiding principle of being human, of being a parent, 
then we see really how dangerous it is to to smooth the way for our kids all the time, to not let them struggle at all, to not have confidence enough to know that they're not a china teacup. They're not going to smash into a million pieces. Even if they go through some bad times, they still need us to support them in, in building skills, working through rather than around. Okay. So that is so major, but there's so much between buying that intellectually <laughs> and operationalizing that as a parent. And now a quick break so I can tell you about my sponsors. When you're not feeling your best and you're just trying to hold it together, finding great care should not take up all of your energy. In fact, it shouldn't really take up much energy at all. That is where ZocDoc comes in. You're using this free app that millions of users rely on, and then you can find the right doctor that meets your needs and fits your schedule. Book an appointment with a few taps in their app and start feeling better fast with ZocDoc. ZocDoc is the only free app that lets you find and book doctors who are patient-reviewed, take your insurance, and are available when you need them and treat almost every condition under the sun. This is the thing. ZocDoc helps you find a doctor that actually takes your insurance, is highly rated. You can just go look at all of the ratings from other patients and is available when you can actually see them. It's so important to get checkups to make sure that you're feeling okay, both physically and mentally. So go to ZocDoc.com humans and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated doctor today. Many are available within 24 hours. That's Z-O-C-D-O-C dot com slash humans, ZocDoc.com slash humans, ZocDoc.com slash humans. Let's go through some developmentally typical examples of moments when there's discomfort, expectable discomfort, and maybe a way of responding that might accidentally fuel the fire and ways of responding that help support this idea of anti-fragility. Right. Well, we can start in infancy and anxiety is a good case study for this because there's so many acceptable or rather expected and therefore acceptable fears and anxieties that emerge throughout development. You see stranger danger emerging, you know, when kids are nearing their first year and and we expect to see that once kids, as, as they've bonded to their caregivers and become socially more developed, it would only make sense that they'd be able to tell the difference between, you know, kith and kin and other people. And you can see, you know, there's probably evolutionary advantage to that, to knowing who's in your tribe and who's not. Sure. But having that bit of anxiety about the unknown person, that's a very, that's an expected, you know, sign that we see emerging in childhood. So then, okay, so if we don't think of it as expected or normal, what do we do if, if our kids start to be frightened about strangers or a little nervous or shy around others? Well, if we swoop them up anytime there's around a stranger around and just run them out of the house, you right. know, or, you know, and avoid putting them in any new situations or, you know, or, you know, conversely, kind of almost throw them into the deep end of it and constantly right. barrage them with new people. I mean, both of those approaches 
are sort of not about, you know, scaffolding or buttressing or building skills. It's about sort of a panic reaction born out of a belief that we either have to protect them or make or or force them, white knuckle them through it to get them to, to be able to handle this. And this goes alongside, you know, a five year old in a setting where maybe they don't like birthday parties or a school age child who's worrying about tests or a social situation. Right. And the social anxieties, especially, yeah, that appear that are new in adolescent, you know, prepubescent adolescence, you know, the preschool era when all of a sudden kids are going to school, you know, when maybe they were at home before. So right, all of those inflections, those developmental inflections, it's always social fears that come to the fore because we are social animals. And so we have, you know, they're going to be expressed. And it's a huge opportunity to work with and build those skills. So the real principle, I think, is again, the best way out is through. It's to, it's to never shy away from the reality that this is an experience, trying not to go into danger, you know, kind of alarm mode right away, and, and thinking of it as an opportunity for skill building, which means we as parents are recognizing there's a zone of proximal development here. There's this, there's this transition from one stage to another where kids are able to do one thing, but not quite able to do another. And it's our job to be that bridge. And so when we think about that, I think in most of these situations, we'll start to, we'll start to kind of shift, like our perspective will shift just enough that we'll be able to take that breath, you know, that space between the feeling and reacting to the feeling, right? Of our anxiety about their anxiety and start to say, okay, there's information here. There's skills we can build. Maybe it's telling us something about this child's world that's really important to tune into. And I can, we can prepare to take some actions that are helpful. We can build coping skills. So, so we get this, this, this different perspective. You know, another fear that's very common is fear of the dark. <laughs> that's a, that's a, and fear of insects yeah. and fear of being, you know, all I, when my kids turned eight and nine, almost on cl- as like clockwork they started developing these certain anxieties, one of them of bugs and the other of being alone in the house after having no signs of this. But I knew developmentally that as you're in this, what's been traditionally called sort of this latency period, this sort of prepubescent, like eight, not like school age period, a lot of kids develop fears. And when I reminded myself of that, I was able to sort of like, okay, let me bring like my you know my my most open mind and my best skills to this moment. Although I did lock my daughter in a bathroom <laughs> with a fly once, kind of inadvertently. But once I was in a, in for a penny, I was in for a pound because I thought I was doing like exposure therapy, <laughs> and I literally caused like you know she literally to this day tells me that like I destroyed like I ruined her. That's <laughs> like great. her bug phobia. Which she got through, but I did sort of overreact, thinking that I needed to throw her into the deep end. So, you know, we unwound it, we got through it, but it's, but it's like, you know, it was this attitude I had that I had to somehow white knuckle it through, you know, or avoid it altogether. And it's always that sweet spot in between that's really yeah. the way. And so, what are some of the things that we do as, and, and again, not to, finger wag about it, but more like to just point out things that we can be more conscious of, like those moments when we might call the parent who was responsible for creating the invitations to the party that 
one child didn't get invited to, or, you know, something where we're like, I don't like how my child feels. So I'm going to work with the players, the adult players to remove that feeling. What's, what's an example of kind of the space between reacting and fixing everything and supporting our kids without throwing them in the deep end? Yeah. I mean, I think a good rule of thumb, and we have to know our kids to do this effectively. We, we have to be kind of observers, right? We have to be curious and open and ready to be a little scientific and just see, okay, who is this person who's living with me? Who is this person? And I think we start to see what their strengths and vulnerabilities are. And so I know what my kid's good at, and I need to try to help them take an independent step at the, at the sort of at the edge of their ability whenever possible. So if I know that, you know, my child just got left out of a birthday party, kind of to, to your example, perhaps, and is feeling just really rejected, really horrible, really left out, instead of calling up the parent and asking that my child be invited, I talk with my child. I think in those situations, as we talked about feeling like really rejected, really left out, I then tried to help them think about, well, what are, you know, this is feeling bad, you know, friendship is feeling kind of bad right now. Are there friends that you feel good around? Are there social, you know, kind of to positivity tune my child to, well, this is, let's be with how much this sucks right now, that this feels bad. But is there some way that you can create something that is socially rewarding for you or that feels good to you in this moment? And I, a couple times that that happened, you know, my, my child would say, well, you know, I want to have a sleepover at my house. Can I invite a friend over? And, but that was their idea. It wasn't me saying, let's invite all your friends over and have a, a rival party. And, right. you know, and like somehow it's going to be, instead, it was something that she thought would be a great idea and invited one of her, you know, a couple of her best friends over. And it really made her remember that she does have great friends and she is part of a community. So I think that, but I knew that was within her ability and I knew she, so I kind of set her up for success in a way. Yes. So that's one part, but, but as long as often as we can turn it over to our kids to, to develop these solutions, even if we're scaffolding them and maybe like encouraging them along the way, that's, that's, I think a really important step to take. And when you just described that situation, what, what I noticed and I hope everybody else did, is first you validated her experience of it being really crummy. So it wasn't right to the positive and it wasn't right to the solution. It was going through that feeling. And then after that, being able to say, all right, can you come up with something else that might, you know, like hanging out with people that make you feel good, that feel like good friends. So I, mm-hmm. I think that's actually a, a wonderful example and translates to so many different scenarios. And each of those times you get the opportunity to build those skills more and more like, oh, I know what to do when this feels like this. Mm-hmm. So what about repeated experiences where you think as a parent, like, I, I'm worried. I'm really yeah. worried about my kid. How do we know when to worry and how to define what it means to go beyond scaffolding and supporting and get outside help? I think, you know, I'm of the philosophy that seeking outside help is not necessarily a sign that anything's really broken, that we can at any point you know, have a session with a therapist or a coach or a spiritual advisor 
or a really good acupuncturist or, uh, you know, that that we can at any time seek out opportunities for our kids to actually be invested in self-care, to take time where someone's listening to them or they're expressing themselves to a trusted person that that isn't a parent or family member necessarily. So they don't feel like they have to protect their family feelings, the family members' feelings. or so, so I do think that we can take that step whenever we feel like it and we can follow our instinct. But I'll also say, or maybe that's an and, and I'll also say <laughs> that there are definite signs that we do want to look out for when we see our kids struggling and when we're probably at a tipping point of, of needing to get that extra support. And you know, I think of them in a couple of ways. One is sort of in this, this framework of the four D's, the letter D, meaning that when I see my kid coping with their, their personal experiences, their feelings, I see that the way they're coping is causing dysfunction, meaning it's getting in the way of them being able to go to school, meet up with friends. It's living, loving, laughing. It's getting in the way of the, all those things kids need to do. So it's this way of coping that's you know, maybe they're self-isolating, maybe they're self-harming. Like there, there are things like that that are definite red flags that we should say, okay, that is getting in the way of living life in a healthy, well way. And then the other three Ds are kind of icing on that cake, which in, or except it's not a cake per se, but it's like added color to this, which is duration, distress, and disproportion. So the duration is that you know, I may see that my kids, and this again, this is this is 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 not just you know, this is an anecdotal truth that there are periods, especially um, with kids entering middle school or different transitional points or different losses a kid might experience, when they might have a so- like solid days of not feeling great, and then you see it as you're thinking about the duration, like how long is this lasting? Yeah. Now it's going into a week. Now it's going into two weeks. Now this whole month they've had more days of feeling anxious, sad, overwhelmed than, than not. And that's when you start to say, okay, if it's really, if it's not something that the usual tools we have at our disposal are helping with, that might be, that might be a sign as well. And usually by then it's also causing dysfunction. Maybe they're starting to cut off from things they like to do. Maybe they've dropped out of the sport they loved all their life, you know, things like that. We'll see it. The distress is obvious. You want to see there's significant distress. It's really bothering your child. The disproportion is a tricky and interesting one because often when we start to be in a risk zone, kids' emotions, they start to, you know, what we might think of as overreact, but but really it's about regular reactions that are disproportionate to the situation given their developmental level. So what's disproportionate for a a, a 17-year-old is not going to be disproportionate for a six or seven-year-old, right? So you have a 17-year-old, they had one friend who sent them a mean text and it sends them into a spiral for a week. Like that might be disproportionate to the developmental achievements we'd hope that a 17 year old would have. Right. And then it's causing distress and dysfunction and all the other things. An eight year old, maybe that, maybe it's going to take them longer to recover because they're still developing those skills and, and all the social changes that they're going through. So those are the things I think we need to look out for. Definitely trust your instinct. If you feel like, oh, I'm trying to do the 4D checklist and you're not sure, but your instinct is, I think I need someone to weigh in on this, don't hesitate is always my advice. Right. It's never harmful to Mm -mm. check in. Mm -mm. And now a quick break so I can tell you about my sponsor. There is a very cool way to take a personalized approach to health and longevity from a trusted and relevant source, your actual body. 
So to live your healthiest and longest life possible, you need to understand what's going on inside. By using data from your blood, DNA, and fitness trackers, Inside Tracker gives you personalized and science-backed recommendations on things you can take control of to optimize your health, like food, supplements, workouts, and lifestyle choices, including ways to optimize sleep and stress. Inside Tracker tests and provides optimal ranges for over 40 biomarkers like magnesium, vitamin D, testosterone, cortisol, you name it. And the thing that I think is coolest about Inside Tracker is that they have a strict science-backed approach to everything that they do. So if your specific biomarker level is unoptimized, Inside Tracker provides recommendations that are backed by dozens of peer-reviewed studies and personalized to you. The process was set in place by their founders that include experts in aging, genetics, biometric data from Harvard, Tufts, and MIT. So for a limited time, you get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store when you sign up at insidetracker.com humans. So if you're ready to get a crystal clear picture of what's going on inside your body, along with science-backed recommendations to optimize what's not working, then visit insidetracker.com slash humans to get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. It's interesting because we talk about responding and in moments that we know are uncomfortable or difficult. But let's also talk about some of the exercises and ways of being that help just build those muscles outside of the context of during distress. Mm -hmm. That's such a great question. I think, you know, one thing I notice about kids today who who seem to be struggling is is that they they don't feel like they have the ability or haven't found the thing that they feel they can go deep on. And I just I don't just mean passion, I don't just mean purpose and those are really important words. But they're very highfalutin, you know, they're very high standards, right? It's like you have to have purpose in life and you have to have passion. And I think that creates this whole set of expectations that can be really kind of can actually disrupt our ability to just find joy in life. So so what I mean by going deep is that that when we see our kids show interest or pleasure or just kind of fascination with something. helping them just dig a little deeper into it. And, you know, a lot of us are very quick to like, give the lesson, give the tutor, give the, but let, you know, that makes, that makes, that makes it so that we own it, that we're driving that interest. I feel that when we are actually just sort of in the wings and, and sort of greasing the wheels a teeny bit when they're, you know, so say they're getting really interested in music, just even like making family time to talk about and to hear how interested your child is in music is actually a way to kind of deepen their experience. You don't have to sign them right up for, for lessons. Now they may want to and they'll ask for it and great, do it. But but I think that there are just ways to let kids know that there are things that are greater than ourselves, that are that are that are interests we have, that are skills we want to build, that are things that just light us up, that we just love. And in many ways, that's, you know, that is a big part of of what makes life worth living. And so I think being eyes open and seeing our children and they may be attracted to things we're not that excited about, but, but, you know, to really take that, that kind of, to be a cultivator 
of, and then to go deep because kids spend so much time flitting and whether it's social media or just the way technology and entertainment is set up, the way we make them into these little consumers or people who are brands instead of selves. I mean, I don't think social media causes everything or is, or, you know, is destroying a generation, but I do think that these technologies are amplifiers and keep us on the surface instead of going deep and just being, you know, with slow learning, right? It kind of primes kids to be into the fast stratosphere. And so, so I think spending more time, you know, yes, off screens, but more, what are you doing instead of being on screens? What are you creating that allows you to be creating rich relationships, doing something interesting, innovative, having time for awe? There's a beautiful new book that just came out that the wonderful psychologist, Dr. Keltner wrote, called awe and it's about the the transformational experience of of tuning into something that is vast that is actually beyond our limited selves and he did a, a research study that he talks about in the book where he asked people about sources of awe in their own lives and you know it's nature and it's some of the usual suspects but you know what the biggest source of awe was was the what people did in their daily lives that showed kindness, loyalty, fortitude. So it was really the inspiration of things that other people did that elevated one sense of one's own self and possibilities that was one of the biggest sources of awe. So I think we could also find those opportunities to let our kids find awe in their life as well. Can you talk a little bit about some of the successful intervention and prevention programs that really can translate to how we navigate this in our kids' day-to-day lives to support them and also to support our parenting. Because so much of this can be, you know, just feels like this heavy weight for parents or there is a sense of, especially with the lack of practitioners who could even support kids who might need a referral there's so much that parents can do. Mm-hmm. So I wonder if you could talk about the space program at Yale or any other concrete ways to sort of slowly move through day-to-day experiences that can stretch our window of tolerance for ourselves as our kids are going through things and for our kids directly. I I do want to talk about the space intervention. It's such a wonderful intervention and it's been developed for kids with anxiety disorders. I want to start though, by talking about something that I think is just starting to trickle its way into the intervention field, which which are mindset interventions. So you you can see some of these earliest interventions emerging like in, 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 in like around 2010, 2013. And there was a great study by Jameson and colleagues out of Harvard with a bunch of colleagues there, including Matt Nock and others, where they brought socially anxious people into the lab and had them do something extremely difficult for them, which was to give a public speech without preparation in front of a panel of judges. And that's literally for a socially anxious person who has a social anxiety disorder. It's kryptonite. Their key symptom is fear of public humiliation and judgment, and et cetera. But here's where the mindset intervention comes in. What they did is just to half of this group, they spent between and really, all these interventions are between 15 and 30 minutes. They're micro-interventions. And what they did is they acknowledged the person, the people's feelings, which is that, okay, you are about to do this thing and you're going to, you're going to feel, you're feeling horrible right now. 
your heart's racing, you're sweating, you feel like you're maybe going to throw up. But that's not you getting ready to fall apart. That's not you ready to go into a panic attack. This is actually, according to science, your body preparing to perform at its peak. You know, you're, you're all of the, your body, it's like an engine and it's working to get you focused and, and, and paying attention and allow you to persist through obstacles. And by the way, here are a couple studies that show this. And by the way, Darwin wrote about stress and anxiety and all these emotions as being adaptive. And so really it was just 15 to 30 minutes of telling people this new story about their anxiety backed up with evidence. And then they had them, they, they threw them into the speech, right? They threw them into the deep end. But what you see is with the people who were given the mindset reset, they not only perform better, were more confident, fewer ums and ahs, they had lower blood pressure and lower heart rates, which means that their mindset actually changed their biology. That, that in believing that anxiety could be a potential advantage, their bodies followed suit and they performed like, and, and, their, and their biological profiles looked like people who were rising to the challenge. So we can do this every day. And we don't need, like, we don't need scientific studies. We, what we need to do is create a vocabulary in our families yes. of actually talking about and believing that anxiety is a useful part of being human. We're all born anxious. It has to feel bad to do its job. There's that guy who, what is that guy that uh, Jocko Willink or, you know, that guy, I mean, you know, he's like, people come and they're like, I feel terrible. I feel anxious. I feel like, and he's like, good. And it's like one of these Spartan guys, right? And and I I don't know. Every, I'm not going to advocate or not advocate. But what I love about that message is that that response of good means that we have an opportunity. Yeah, a little shift. And when we do that little mindset shift, all of a sudden, I feel like we know more of the. It primes us to do more of the right things, which is to listen, help our kids listen to their emotions, abide with them not make them go away right away, right? See if there's information. So we listen, we get the information, we leverage it, we take actions. Like we say, oh, well, you, you're anxious about the test and you feel like you need to study more? Great, let's do it, let's study more. And so we, we, you know, we listen, we leverage, and then we can let go. We can help our kids calm down. We can help them, you know, maybe they love listening to music, maybe they love sports, maybe they love, maybe they do love mindfulness and breathing exercises. <laughs> it's hard for a lot of kids, but some kids really love it too. Like we can help them flexibly engage with anxiety, use it as much as they can, and then learn to let go. So I feel like this mindset intervention approach, which has since been replicated, there was a great study published in Nature last year that, that many articles were written about because they had applied this mindset reset, which was a 30 minute online intervention that anyone can do to teens, teens who are handling upcoming test anxiety, teens who are experiencing adversity. And, and they, what they showed is that these mindsets, these mindset resets can work with our teens. So that's a first step. And then you have things like the space intervention where they have kids, you know, typically for kids who have diagnosed anxiety disorders, like social anxiety disorder, you give them gold standard cognitive behavioral therapy and it's effective for a lot of kids. What they did in this study that Elie Leibowitz and his colleagues did and have replicated many times now is that instead of giving the kids therapy, they gave the parents therapy. And it was, except it was called space intervention. It really it was skill building. It wasn't therapy. There's no parent blaming here. But what it did is it taught parents to do what all of us can do with our kids, whether they're clinically anxious or not, 
is to re- is to gradually and confidently scaffold them and build their skills in, in starting to actually experience anxiety and, and be able to cope with it. So these for a lot of these were socially anxious kids in that first study. A lot of them had, you know, didn't want to go to school. So they had school refusal, separation anxiety. They wouldn't sleep in their own beds. And so parents over the course of six weeks were simply taught to slowly get them out of the parent bed, the parental bed and into their own bed. And maybe that was doing it step by step. We know how to do this through, you know, very basic therapeutic techniques that, you know, that we, that, that, that are not hard to learn where you just take one little step at a time and you build on one success and you do, and you do it again and you repeat and, and you're firm and you have good boundaries, but you're loving and consistent. And what they found is that when parents were taught to do this with separation anxiety, with school refusal, with all these kinds of anxieties, kids, after six weeks of parents learning this, they, a huge proportion of them, the vast majority showed a reduction from clinical levels of anxiety to subclinical. So they had a big reduction in symptoms and get this parents reported feeling significantly less stress, less stress, which means not only was it helpful for the kids, but it took an immense amount of pressure off the parents to believe that they could help their kids through this rather than over accommodating and always trying to smooth the way. It's so heartening because so much of this really is this weight on parents' shoulders that leads to over accommodations, which makes everybody feel worse. But it's all in the service of just like not knowing or or wanting so much to do right, to reduce mental illness. I mean, that's the the irony of it all. Yeah. And I think that it's so it's such a gift, which is why I love your book. It's such a gift to be able to help parents believe in their kids mm. and believe in themselves to support their kids. And so what space does and any kind of intervention like that, really a lot of it is getting that permission to support your kids in a different kind of way and believe that they will be okay moving through and not out of or avoiding. You know, how many times do you hear from a friend, a worried friend, that they they want to fix a suffering their child is experiencing? And how many times do you hear from, I mean, do classrooms, do teachers do, you know, we, we've gotten so scared of how fragile kids are. And it's just, we've doubled down on it probably because of the pandemic, just like the guilt that we feel as parents for what kids have gone through. We have doubled down on wanting to accommodate. And in this process, I'm afraid we're buying the wrong information. Oh, I couldn't agree with you more. And, you know, it's it was such a great thing over the pandemic that it was, you know, as people said, okay, not to be okay. Yeah. But I feel like we've gone too far to such a degree in that direction, right? That we've that we've started to feel like being okay means. And again, it's this sort of this this forced positivity that you're only really okay when everything is perfect in your life and you're and you have no distress and there's no mistakes. And and so, you know, so and and we don't, as you say, and I thought it was so beautiful the way you said it, we we have started to believe less in our kids and less in ourselves. And it's just so hard for parents right now because all we, you know, just as you said, all we want to do. Is, 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 is just be there for our kids, is to help them and support them. 
And so, you know, I think when parents, you know, and I think if parents are listening to this and thinking, oh my gosh, I've been doing the wrong thing. And why am I doing it? Take a breath. I mean, it's really, it's never, it, you know, there's this old concept, as you know, as a developmental psychologist, Eliza, that this concept in developmental psychology, good enough parenting. Mm-hmm. And I just wish everyone would believe that because, and it's this idea that it's really hard to screw up your kids, actually, <laughs> like to really screw them up. And there's just this kind of, when we love them, when we accept them, and when we show them consistency, right? And guidance and, and have healthy boundaries. As long as we're doing that most of the time, uh, most of the, the rest time. is gravy. Not even all the time. Yeah. All the time would not be healthy. Nor possible. No, it probably wouldn't be. Sometimes you got to lock your daughter in a bathroom with a giant fly and like traumatize them. <laughs> and, then she, and now she knows you blew it. And she loves rubbing my face and in it. she survived it. Well, you know, the rest of that story is, I mean, I just had to say mea culpa to that. I was like, I was like, dude, I don't know. I lost my mind. And she's like, but now I'm afraid of bugs. But what we did is she had a camp she wanted to go to shortly after, like that summer. And it was this camp that her friends were going to. And it was like magical. And it was up in Maine. And she was her first sleepover camp. And I said, well, that's great. We're signing up for it. I want you to know that there are bugs. <laughs> like it's going to happen. Yep. You know, what do you, what do you, what do you want to do? You know, let's, let's just, let's work on Like, what do you think? What's next? And she decided that she needed to slowly get comfortable with them. So we then, we actually did normal things instead of locking people in bathrooms, which is like, we, you know, we went in the, into the yard, we got around bugs a little, then we came out back inside, then we went out. So it was gradual exposure. But then, you know, when she got there at camp, she was still afraid. And she told me after she said, you know what I realized though, that my fear of the bugs was keeping me from doing all this fun stuff. Everyone loves to swim in the lake. I was too afraid. Everyone loves to walk in the wood, you know, in the woods on this island that you can like take a canoe to. I was too afraid. And I just decided that I didn't want to miss out anymore. So she just figured it out. I couldn't. And then she came back and she's like, why would people ever swim in a pool? I'm a lake swimming girl. I mean, it was a complete transformation because we allowed her and her camp directors who are wonderful, allowed her to figure it out. Also, what's so cool about that is you could have said there are bugs there. And until you get over your bug fear, we're not sending you there because it's going to be too hard. Right. Or, oh, honey, there are bugs there. Oh, maybe you don't want, oh, I don't know, like to show my own anxiety. Yeah. And, or, you know, telling the, the camp counselors she's afraid of bugs, ah. please keep them away. Yeah, keep away. We have to, yeah, right. Or whatever. There are all these things I could have done. Well intentioned, 100%. Totally. But, right. But instead, we had sort of a, a collaborative conversation about it. I did say, you know, you might want to do something ahead of time. Just, you know, you don't have to. <laughs> I was like, I'm not going to do the bathroom again. It's literally shorthand with us now for like me screwing up. I'm like, not going to be a bathroom situation again, but like maybe do something. And so she, we were able to find something within a zone of comfort that was also a little bit of a challenge. But yeah, there are so many things I could have done instead, but I let her lead. And by the way, she like had a lot of the right answers. <laughs> That's pretty cool. And right. If they don't have a right answer, that's the other thing is like, what's the worst case scenario? Yeah. She's not happy during that time period. And I wonder, you know, like when our kids or we feel, but more our kids, when we see our kids experiencing difficult emotions, 
we get into like a spiral of fear that this will be their forever feelings. But when we see them happy and giggling, we never are like, I guess this is it. They're going to be laughing forever. That's such a good point. (laughs) We we, We did it. We got it. Like we so get how temporary feelings are when they're positive. Oh my gosh. That is a beautiful point. A hundred percent. So we just have to keep on reminding ourselves of all of these things so that we can, and, and it should just lift so much of the cloud of panic in our adult selves so that we can actually be there for these kiddos. Yeah. And, and I don't, I mean, I think this pandemic threw everyone into a real tizzy about mental health. It's so exciting that mental health is getting so much attention and also mm-hmm. it's like maybe there's bad marketing for some of it. I think that's a great way of doing it. I mean, I sometimes say that anxiety has a PR problem because yeah. PR, you know, there's marketing, this, this, it's all about the stories we tell and they're really powerful. And it doesn't mean we have to make up fairy tales or, but it just means that, that when we, when, if anxiety sends us into the future and in the future, there's negative and positive, positive possible because it's uncertain. What's the story that we tell ourselves about, you know, about that possibility? Where do we, where do we come down on that? And I, I was speaking to someone about this a, a little while back and she said something so beautiful. She said, you know, I started to think of myself as someone who struggles with anxiety, but that just so didn't fit my, doesn't fit my personality. And now I've realized that I'm someone who struggles with hope. And once you say that, it changes everything. So that's what I wish for for myself as a parent to remember. That's what I wish for all parents to remember that, you know, that our kids, when they struggle with anxiety, they struggle with hope. They struggle with creativity. They struggle with how to persist and how not. They struggle with all the good stuff at the same time. Please note that this episode may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products and services. Individuals on the show may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to in this episode.